and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Linda Fisk, at last, I am so excited to be interviewing you for She's the Boss Chats. Thank you so much for agreeing to do it. Oh my gosh, it's such a pleasure being with you. Thank you so much, Jules, for allowing me to share this platform with you. Oh my, absolute pleasure. And we did, uh, for anyone listening, have a bit of a technical hitch, so this is our second time around. (laughs) And your story is so amazing. So let's start off, though, by telling everybody what you do now. Absolutely. I have the pleasure and privilege of serving as the chief executive officer for an organization called Lead Hership Global. And Lead Hership Global is exactly what it sounds like. It's a community for the most impactful women in the world. We help them unleash the full potential of their ambitions, their dreams, their purpose, their power in a high-performing growth-oriented community that's really designed to be confidential, supportive, and private. Wow. Can I just say that just rolls off your tongue so well. I really need to do something like that for Choose the Boss. (laughs) It is an amazing community. And I think you've got about 10,000 of them in there, haven't you? Yes, we have a community of now almost 11,000 women in leadership all over the world. That is just so extraordinary. So why did you set it up? Well, we realized that all around the world, women face socio-political economic barriers that men typically do not. And we wanted to help women all over the world accelerate their success by helping them define their vision, grow their leadership, expand their influence, and truly leave a lasting legacy. And we felt like to do that, we need to harness the knowledge, the influence, the trust of high-performing women all over the world. And so we give them access to those kinds of really transformative advantages that You're never going to find advertise on LinkedIn. We give them access to financing and to media opportunities. We support creativity. We provide resources and tools to help accelerate the personal and professional breakthroughs that women all over the world are looking for. That is just amazing. But did some, what happened or what was the clincher, the light bulb moment that you thought, we've got to go and set this up because there are women's groups everywhere. Why out of America have you decided to go global? And why? what was it that I guess happened that made you go, no, nah, I've got to actually go and set something up? Yeah. You know, I don't know that it was one particular event, but I will say that I've had the opportunity to serve in leadership positions yes. with some of the most unbelievable executive leadership organizations in the world. I've been able to serve as both CMO and CMO with two of the most elite, two of the most successful, and two of the most transformative executive leadership membership groups in the world. And what I found in both of those other organizations is that women never felt honored. They didn't feel um, respected and valued. They felt 
oftentimes that they were dismissed or demeaned or diminished in some way, even though to be a part of either one of these organizations, you had to achieve a phenomenal level of success. You had to prove through tax records that you were in a CEO or president position of a firm that generated more than 50 million U.S. dollars a year and had more than 20 full-time employees. And yet the women in these organizations often felt like they were treated as executive administrators. They were treated as uh, people that somehow didn't deserve to be a part of that organization. And so we wanted to give women the opportunity to feel valued, to feel honored, to feel respected. And, and we've connected. created an environment mm. where everyone is respected and everyone is treated with dignity. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that I have discovered, and I know that we've had this conversation ourselves, is that when you do reach those very high levels of success, it's incredibly lonely. Like there's just, it's very hard to find that support network. And then say you do join one of those organizations you just talked of, and you find that it's very male dominated and that they're doing a whole lot of things for the blokes and not even thinking about the women. Um, that you know, it's super important that we give these women support as well. Um, and I love what it is that you're doing to help these women, but also to connect globally. And I think, you know, connection is just such an important part of it, as well as the education and obviously the respect. But um, I love, love, love what you're doing. So, um Let's go back now. I want to hear a little bit more about you. And I know you have an incredible story that really blew me away last time. So where did you grow up um, and um, what sort of size family did you have and what did your mum and dad do? Let's go back right the way to those days. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Jules. I will say that I had a really idyllic um, childhood for sure. Um, we had a very, very tight sort of uh, family of origin. I had one younger brother and a mom and a dad. Um, but it was interesting because we moved quite a bit when I was younger. My father had a position where it was important for him to be able to be mobile. Yep. And so I lived in a lot of places when I was um, growing up. And as a very young child, I was actually considered to be clinically shy which meant that clinically I was shy. unable, to, not just yes. normally shy, clinically shy. <laughs> wow. Yes. Which meant that I was unable to hold eye contact with strangers, even though my parents certainly urged me to look people in the eye, to shake their hand and say hello. But over time, I developed a penchant for actually whispering my words at an uneven oh. rate of speech and repeating my words with a pretty pronounced stutter. And so social settings and high stress environments made it nearly impossible for me to speak. And I became more and more self-conscious and the tension in my voice made it more and more difficult to utter even a word. And so wow. over time, my frustration with my attempts to communicate led to a lot of hesitation in speaking, prolonged pauses during the times I was speaking and oftentimes the conversation moved on before I even had an opportunity to chat with anyone. So wow. over time it became simpler to simply remain quiet. And so, by the time I was in high school, I had the nickname mouse because I was quiet as a mouse. Oh, wow. Because I was going to say, what sort of age was this? So from 
birth, pretty much, or for, as a very young girl, you started becoming shy or were very shy, and that didn't improve right the way through to high school. It is so, if anyone was here looking at you as I am, it, I, that would be so hard to believe. You are so articulate and outgoing and warm, and I, I, it's amazing to me that you were so shy. So it was a happy childhood. Uh, you and your brother were close. Very close. But I do think that this type of stuttering that I experienced developed partly because we were moving so often. I was always the new kid and I was uh, always in a social setting that I was trying to navigate my way through it. And so what I found over time is that I consciously began to avoid words or sounds or even situations that might involve some sort of struggle And so I developed a behavioral pattern and a coping mechanism that kept me pretty vigilant at all times. And so um, what that created for me is a sense of self-isolation. I was very, very close to my mother, my father, my brother. But I would say that, you know, being in social situations where I was always the new kid, I was always the one, you know, trying to make friends, that I always felt a lot of social anxiety and the words seemed to get stuck or I was repeating words over and over. And I found that the stuttering that I developed uh, was very much triggered by social stress, which I'm sure also led to this idea of creating a safe, private, confidential and supportive community where women have a safe place to be able to express themselves. They have a safe place to be able to be vulnerable and transparent. And I I know that that probably played into what I'm doing right now. Um, But I will also tell you that it also led me to this sense of tenacity that I have in my leadership style, because I believe that if I can overcome a very pronounced stutter at a young age, anyone can do just about anything. Oh, you're so right. And it's really interesting that you say that because I grew up where we we never lived anywhere more than 18 months. I think most of the time it was six months to a year because I was in the army. And I've often had this theory that the kids who do grow up like that go one way or the other. And look at the two of us who are friends, but also running these big groups. I went the other way. I became incredibly outgoing and I learned very fast how to make friends because sometimes I only had six months to go into a new school, make friends, have a good time. And then you'd be leaving and often be the new girl again. And I did that right right the way up to my final year of school. My parents took me out of my current high school and sent me to a new one. Um, So it's really interesting that you became very introverted because I do think that's the opposite way that children cope. So how did you recover from this stuttering? I mean, what did you do? Well, I will say um, in college, I enrolled in public speaking courses. Ah. It seems a little... Uh, perhaps crazy. And although it took four years, dozens of public speaking classes, speech therapy and counseling, I actually graduated college having competed in several public speaking contests and I actually won four different competitions. And from that first, yes. And from that first public speaking course where I actually 
fainted in front of a classroom <laughs> oh of 25 God. fellow students to graduation when I could present to an auditorium of 5,000 people. Oh my God. I really believe that that was a case study in both grit and grace. And to me, grit was evident in my resolve and my stamina to reach a pretty impossible goal uh, of being a public speaker when I stuttered so badly, I couldn't even have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with another person. Wow. All of the time I could remember from the time I was, uh, you know, learning to speak all the way up through college. But I will tell you that grit was a hallmark of my growing up, yeah, um, my tell. adolescence and also grace. Grace was needed along the journey to accept my limitations to accept my very slow progress at times, my setbacks. And I will say that after graduation, I actually went back to my undergraduate university and I visited the professor that literally picked me off the floor <laughs> after I passed it. out in her classroom. And she said, I'll never forget that afternoon. I've never witnessed a, such a dramatic way of getting out of giving a speech. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I kept wow. coming back. To the second class and the third class and the fourth class, because I was determined. I wanted to have relationship with other people. I wanted to be in a community of other people. I wanted to be able to connect with people in a deep, meaningful, transformative way. And being someone who suffered with stuttering my entire adolescence through adulthood, I knew that I needed to create relationship with people in a very deep and meaningful way. And yet stuttering was going to prevent that in a lot of ways. So I had to find ways of overcoming my stuttering in order to create the kind of relationships in my life that I was looking for. Wow. I mean, that is just amazing for a young girl. Now, before we move on from your childhood, I haven't um, the last interview that we did, you told me about your interesting family. And I really want everyone to know yes. about that background because you, I mean, not only to have overcome this stuttering and this obviously paralyzing child, um, childhood, uh, um, shyness that you had. You had a really interesting family that you grew up with. So tell everybody a little bit about your mom and dad and your brother. Yes. So as I said, I had a very, very close-knit uh, family of origin, right? And my mom, my dad, my brother, we were all very, very close. And largely that was due to, I think, the amount of moving that we did from yeah, place to place. Yeah. We always had each other. But I recognized very early that I didn't really resemble my mother or my father physically. And I always knew when I was growing up that, Linda, you are a little girl, you're blonde, you're blue eyed, and you're adopted. And so I knew that being adopted was part of who I was. It was part of my identity. But it wasn't until I got older that I understood <laughs> that adoption meant that I don't necessarily hold any of the same biological traits as my parents. We are not biologically connected. No, you're a special so choice. <laughs> as I grew up, I recognized Exactly. And as I grew up, I realized that I was 
absolutely uh, as blonde, blue eyed as it gets. I yeah. had just absolutely <laughs> alabaster skin. I had bright, light blue eyes and I had literally white curly hair. But my father is actually um, American Indian. So he is he grew up on a reservation in four wow. corners, which is the corners of four different states. He grew up on a reservation. His first language is actually Cherokee. And wow. his second language is English. And my mother is actually Asian. And so she and my father met. Uh, this is such a stereotypical yeah, story, but in this it's, case, it happens to be true. They actually met at a Marine base. My mother and her family ran the laundry. So they ran <laughs> oh, a wow. Chinese laundry where my father was actually a drill sergeant in the, in the <laughs> wow. Marines. So on that Marine base, they met. She ran the laundry and he was a drill sergeant. They met, they had one date and they got married. No, and so, no, no, no. Uh, Hang which on, is go also back. Not, yes. I cannot believe that they had one date and they got married. Wow. What a love story. And they stayed yes. together from your story, didn't they? they? This was a true love story. That's right. They stayed married until uh, my mother passed. And so Amazing. they were married close to 50 years. Wow. And um, they were deeply in love. But I think that, <laughs> yes, but I would say that their commitment to marriage was much like my commitment to overcoming my stuttering yep. because it was a level of commitment, toughness, determination that predicted that marriage's success. They mm. were absolutely committed to um, staying married and working through the problems that they had. One of the challenges that they experienced early in their marriage is my mom couldn't get pregnant. Right. So um, b- back then, um, it was unclear where the issue really was. But somehow, my mom and dad were unable to get pregnant together. And so they tried to adopt. And adoption back then was very difficult. But it was also very taboo. It wasn't something you talked about. It was actually a point of shame. And so I remember growing up and having people, very well-intentioned people all around me, look at my mom and dad and look at me and say, who are you babysitting for? Yeah. And whose little girl is that? And what was interesting is my parents claimed that and they said, she is our daughter. They didn't give them any explanation. They didn't feel like they needed to uh, defend themselves or explain this blonde little girl that was in their midst. And we had to adopt my brother, too, because still yet my mom and dad were unable to get pregnant even after they adopted me. But interestingly, my brother is also uh, Native American. So he looks very much like my father. Right. Um, but there was one of these things that did not look like the others. And that was me. <laughs> yeah. So um, it became that important into that your ang- I. Your social anxiety at all? Do you think that that was a part of it? being so different because, you know, when you're little, you want to fit in. But on the other hand, you were obviously so loved and they were such great parents. And I love it that, you know, and you're right, because I grew up with three brothers and we moved around everywhere and the family unit becomes home and safety, doesn't it? So, but uh, what an extraordinary upbringing. Yes, it absolutely was. And I will say that when I was growing up, the sitcom Fathers Know Best, which is was a popular show here in the United States, yep. 
Um, it was a mother, a father, and three perfect kids. <laughs> and it represented, in the United States anyway, what a family was supposed to be. Right. And any family that did not fit into a tightly defined mold consisting of a husband, a wife, and two or three kids was absolutely scandalous. So a mother and a father who ended up not being able to conceive or a husband and wife that adopted children was considered to be shameful. And I remember hearing whispered comments all through school systems once, you know, the teachers met my mom and dad. And it became clear that oh. I was the adopted kid. Right. And that was often said with pity or sometimes suspicion and sometimes even scorn. But I will tell you, it's just such a delight now that the sitcoms in the United States anyway, treat adoption as an accepted, yes. even beautiful way to become a family. And so the more contemporary sitcom uh, that we see here in the United States is something called Modern Family. Yes. And there they depict two dads and those two dads are often Asian depicted daughter. as wonderful parents, yeah. doting parents. And the entire extended family just loves on those two dads and their adopted little girl. Um, and it includes a pretty quirky stepfather, stepson relationship. But the entire family is devoted to the adopted daughter of these two loving parents. And you're right. The little girl is Asian. Yeah. So that shows you how much mindset have has changed. shifted and how much societal attitudes have really changed in what a family means and in family formation. And I, for one, I just celebrate the fact that yeah. family now can be defined in such different ways. Yeah, my first cousins, my mum's sister wasn't able to have kids and um, they adopted two little girls that we, I remember, always grew up thinking, wow, they were extra, extra special because they had been chosen to be part of that family as opposed to just happening to a family. And I love that kind of um, attitude towards adoption. But what an extraordinary that, upbringing for you. Um, okay, yes. so you finished school. Uh, what did you do next? Now I want to hear a little bit about the career and particularly about these groups that you were running and CMO of, you know, that, that I mean, in Australia, I think, uh, I think the um, young entrepreneurs or the entrepreneurs organization requires someone to have a million dollars. I love it that in America it's $50 million. I mean, that is just so huge. But anyway, uh, I'm jumping ahead of myself. So let's talk about what did you do when you finished school and how, how tell me about your career journey a bit. I will. Now, going back to this idea of mental toughness or yep. grit, it's my belief that in every single area of growth, from your education to your career, to your athletic training, it's your level of mental toughness and determination that actually predicts your level of achievement. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was absolutely true. I felt incredible pressure to be perfect as a woman, um, also not from an Ivy League school in an incredibly competitive environment. Yep. I needed to have grit. I needed to have that kind of perseverance that was absolutely necessary. So I will tell you, I have learned in my leadership journey that you may have the talent, the ability and the expertise to achieve greatness, but without determination, without resilience, without perseverance, I have found that success can be really elusive. 
Right. So the good news is that grit can be taught. It can be developed over time with practice. And by adopting what I know you know about, Jules, a growth mindset, um, you can develop the ability to persevere. You can see dramatic gains in achievement. You can see dramatic gains in being able to accomplish your goals and improve and expand and um, accelerate whatever your vision of success looks like. So for me, that's absolutely what happened. I graduated. I began a uh, career in marketing. I quickly ascended to be the first, the youngest only across many, many uh, advertising agencies. And then I went to graduate school and I got a master's degree and a PhD in clinical psychology. And then I moved back into running marketing groups for huge corporations. So I worked for Scripps Networks. I worked for Below. I worked for a lot of huge media companies running their marketing um, departments, running their entire marketing initiative. That led me eventually to being a member of leadership communities that allowed me to really not only recognize my natural talents, my giftedness, but also my unmet potential. And it allowed me to start thinking more broadly, to achieve at higher levels, to begin to think about the world, not just in my very myopic view of my career and my uh, marketing um, trajectory, but to think of success in terms of what I'm doing to help other people around me thrive, to help me um, see the world as more broad than just where I was living in the United States and what I was doing within my industry. But to be able to reach success, I realized that the world is a very broad place with a lot of people that also need to be lifted up. So I began to define success much more differently. And I realized that being able to pull leaders together to solve problems in a very transformative way, to be able to problem solve together, to be able to vision together, to be able to work together. um, That is really where I belonged. And so I believe that it's your ability to not only push yourself towards excellence, but to be able to lift others up along with you. That is truly the, the, the definition of success now. Absolutely. But what gave you that global vision because, um, and this vision of helping others, because it's interesting and I don't want to stereotype a lot of Americans, but a lot of Americans that I've met, um, uh, tend to be quite inward thinking. I guess that they don't think outside the boundaries of America. You've got a huge country, you've got massive population. Um, and I guess I'm a big traveler. I've traveled a lot around the world and rarely would you see Americans and particularly Americans that wanted to assimilate in any way when you're traveling. So, and I know this is a, you know, very broad brush strokes, but what gave you, do you think, especially having grown up, you know, with the family that you grew up with, um, you know, that's indigenous, what made you start thinking outside of America? What was it that gave you that, that thirst for, you know, the global vision? Well, I think probably it did start with my family. You know, my father, was certainly American, but he was Native American, which gave him a different perspective. It gave him a different viewpoint on what was happening in our culture. My mother was Asian. And even though she was second generation, 
she also understood sort of the larger vision of assimilating into America from a different culture and what her culture of origin taught her about community. And so it was really interesting, I think, to be able to be raised by two people that loved the United States, but they also had independent sort of perspectives about the United States. And I think that that allowed me to really embrace the idea of diversity and to really understand what it is to to have that sense of being included or excluded in a community. And then I also feel like, um, you know, the opportunity to grow up through corporate America and then join leadership organizations that truly were global. It allowed me to meet inspirational leaders. It allowed me to create lifelong friendships with people in the Middle East, people in Europe, people in Asia, people all over the world and be surrounded by other leaders who are truly invested in my success. And through those relationships, I discovered mentors and coaches and partners and even employees that helped move me to the next level of success. And so I found myself kind of embarking on this continuous discovery of not only who I am as a leader, but how I want to adopt a more um, inclusive yeah. worldview. And I would say that that experience informed my perspective and it allowed me to think about how I wanted to create sustainable impact and influence at every stage of my career. And I felt like at that point, what was most important to me, the cornerstone of my definition of success was to really start thinking about what I could do to lift others up, yes. to help accelerate their success. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, you have to learn how to better serve others and genuinely support their career advancement and overall engagement to be challenged as a leader, to really become challenged as a leader and to push your own potential. You have to become mindful of the opportunity and the responsibility that you have to serve others. And to serve their advancement, that is really where the rubber hits the road. Yep. And I think that's sort of where we both very much align is this idea that we can use whatever we've got, whatever influence we've got, whatever connections we've got to help the others around us and raise them up a little bit more. Because the more we, you know, that lovely saying of we all rise together is so very, very true. Um. Wow. Absolutely, Jules. And I have to say that's one of the reasons why I have such incredible admiration and respect for the impact that you're making for women all over Asia, um, Australia, New Zealand, and around the world. (laughs) And you are just such an inspiration. I feel honored that we now are in partnership, we're in relationship, we are joining our communities. And I will tell you, it's the for me, the fulfilling feeling of giving back and contributing to others that is truly unparalleled. And that's one of the reasons I felt so drawn to you <laughs> is I know that your purpose is about how you're better able to support the women around you, what you can do to further their dreams and their purpose and help them step into their power. Yep. Same. Snap. You're exactly the same. Um, Okay. Now, along your entrepreneurial journey, um, 
One of the things that we learn, and, and you know, you would have heard it a million times as I have, is that things don't always go well. <laughs> Often something yes. can happen that can be seem at the time like an insurmountable um, obstacle that's been thrown in your path. And yet later I can look at the way that I've had to um, change the change the angle, you know, I, I don't, I'm trying to think of another word other than pivot, but let's go back to pivot. It's just that everybody used it so much yeah. in the lockdown, but those pivots sometimes are the best thing that ever could have happened to your business. So I'm interested to know along the uh, leadership global um, path, have you had that happen? And if so, have you got a short story that you could share with us about uh, something that's happened that seemed pretty awful at the time that's ended up being a bit of a positive? Yes. And I will say that um, to that point, I think failure is why successful people achieve such remarkable heights of greatness, because they learn from their setbacks. Yes. They learn from their failures and mistakes, and then they get back up and they apply those learnings to their next attempt. Um, you've all heard the success stories of Walt Disney, who was fired from a newspaper when he told he was told that he lacked imagination <laughs> and had no good ideas. If you can imagine telling Walt Disney that. And the story of Oprah Winfrey is famous. She was fired in her early career as a TV reporter because she was told she was unfit for TV, if you can imagine. <laughs> so I feel like there are dozens of those kinds of stories yes, that gives me strength and gives me resilience, but it also has pointed me towards grace. And I think true grace recognizes that lessons are often learned through experiencing the result of a failure, a bad decision or a mistake, and then learning from it. Now, grace doesn't remove the consequences of that bad decision or that mistake, um, it doesn't protect you from the consequences, but allows the recognition of the mistake, the forgiveness of the failure, yeah. and the resilience to incorporate that learning in our forward progress. So for me, one of the biggest lessons I had, um, and this continues to be a theme in my, um, my leadership, is that I have often put a lot of faith in uh, my, the people that report directly to yep. me yep. and I have given them incredible amounts of trust and, um, a lot of responsibility. Mm -hmm. We've given them a lot of leeway to run programs as they see fit. But oftentimes I have found that by burdening that leader with too much too soon, it can be overwhelming. And so while my own leadership style is to take it on and run forward, I have learned that, in fact, that can be incredibly intimidating to others. And I've lost remarkably talented uh, staff by giving them too much too, too much. soon, by ah. simply turning over the keys to the kingdom and saying, go forward as you see fit. And I feel like I have learned that people often need more support. They need more um, they need more, uh, ability to feel enabled to do that job and maybe they guidance. need more, um, help and assistance and guidance yeah. than what I feel like I would want or need. And so my leadership style is not for everyone. And I feel like oftentimes it's better to check in with those that we have 
uh, in our succession plan. It's better to check in with those that we've given a lot of responsibility to. It's better to ensure that they feel supported, that they feel that they have the guidance they need. They have the resources they need. They have the decision-making authority they need to step into that position and be successful. So again, I've had to show grace, not only to them, but to me, um, to be able to accept that that kind of keys to the kingdom is not the kind of leadership um, that many people want. They need to slowly step into a position of responsibility. That's a really, that's really good learning. I have to say I'm a little bit the same. And I think it's probably when you have that entrepreneurial mindset, you assume everyone around you will as well. And, uh, and then you give them the keys to the kingdom and they go, (laughs) Oh my God, I'm not ready for this. I wanted a job, not a life. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Oh my gosh. You just summarized that so beautifully, Jules. (laughs) And so I have lost people that I felt like were, ready to kind of take on that, that role and assume more responsibility well before they were ready. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's really good advice. I'm sure there's a lot of women listening that will go, "Uh uh-huh. I know that feeling. Um, or the other way, because the other, the other extreme is no better. I don't think where, where somebody is micromanaging every single part of, I mean, I couldn't stand that, but, um, I guess, you know, it's horses for courses. Everybody likes different styles and we've got to learn to work with all the different sort of, you know, types of personalities out there. Okay, my next question to you is to avoid burnout because now I've interviewed probably 250 women. One of the things that I have heard time and time again is the number of women that have pushed themselves too far and have ended up making themselves sick and often to the point where they've had to take a year out of work or even completely change their career. So for you, um, what sort of hours do you work? How do you juggle that work-life balance? Yeah, I think that part of this is understanding, again, that fundamental question of what does success look like for you? Yeah. And for me, having an abundant life means being in balance. Now, keep in mind that that balance can shift. Of course. Right? There may yeah. be some weeks, some months where you are spending 90% of your time uh, working because you are creating a brand new business or you're creating a brand new revenue opportunity or you're developing a new program or a new initiative. And so in those cases, you absolutely have got to spend some duration of time really focused on your business. But I would say most cases, you have the opportunity to work in balance so that your personal life, your your fitness level, your spirituality, your work life can work in some sort of tandem with each other and you can achieve a level of balance. And for me, that certainly is success. But again, I think that that spirit of abundance is embracing the idea that there's plenty for all of us to share and that we have to relate to those around us with an open mind and an open heart and recognize that for us, our definition of success may look very different from someone yes, else. Absolutely. And recognizing <laughs> that however we define success, that's something that we have to work towards every single day. Sometimes that is 
you know, especially over the holidays for me, it was really focusing on my spirituality and focusing on my relationship to the creator and focusing on how I wanted to embody that for the next year. And a lot of my time over those six weeks were focused on more of a spiritual quest. And right. that was appropriate for that time. Yeah. Um, so I feel like there needs to be a little bit of movement and a little bit of flow in the way that you balance your life as well. Yeah, I think that's really, really important. And that you you take time out to, as you say, sort of nourish your soul as well as as well as um building the bank balance and and growing your influence. So um okay, last question, and I know you're an incredibly busy woman, so thank you so much for giving me the time today. Here's one out of left field. Is there a quirky fact about you that most people don't know that you'd be up for sharing with us? <laughs> and it can um, be I think anything. I've already shared a couple of them <laughs> um, in that. Yeah. In that I think that um, I uh, most people would not know that I'm adopted. Most people would not know that I moved around a ton as a yeah, child. True. And most people may not know that I actually um, overcame a pretty significant stuttering no. issue um, from Very the time true. that I, you know, I was a young child all the way through college. Um, so I think those are three things that people may not know. The other thing that I would say is that um, I have had in in the last probably 10 years, a series of real health challenges that, again, most people would not know oh. because it's not something I speak about often. But I've had three uh, reconstructed back surgeries. Um, oh, Linda, I, I, I have two rods and 86 screws between my neck all the way down to my tailbone. And again, I think that that has just led to this sense of grit that yes. I talked about earlier. It's led to me, led me to have this sense of determination um, and also always focusing on what I'm grateful for, not what I don't have, but what I do have. Yeah. I'm very, very diligent and very determined to every day recognize what is abundant in my life, where I am prosperous, those things I'm grateful for, uh, because there was, you know, a year where I was in the hospital and I was in traction um, yeah. and it was really tough. I, I lived um, in a hospital bed, even in my own home, learning how to sit up, learning how oh, to take a step, learning what, how what to walk. What sort of age was that? How and long so, ago? Oh, ten, in the last 10 years, you it said? It was uh, two years ago, actually, oh my that God. I had the last back surgery. Yeah. Wow. Well, I wasn't expecting that, but you often surprise me. <laughs> Oh, what an incredible woman yeah. you are, Linda. Um, I can't we now you alluded to the fact that we've got a little partnership going. Um, we will just quickly mention that in the podcast that we are going to start doing some Zooms between our communities so that we our members can help each other and get to know each other, which I think is going to be fabulous. Um, if anyone is listening to this and would like to get in touch with you or to find out more about Leadership Global, what is the best way for them to do that? I'm really active on LinkedIn. So yep, you're right. welcome to reach out to me either on Lead Hership Global's page on LinkedIn or me personally, Linda Fisk on LinkedIn. You can also reach me directly through our website, Great. Lead Hership Global. You can simply have a chat with me on the website or submit an email form on the website. I'm happy to get in touch with you. Even if you say, I'm just interested in your media opportunities or your funding opportunities 
opportunities, or I just want to learn more. No problem. Just reach out. I am happy to connect with anyone who uh, submits a uh, chat on the website or on LinkedIn and happy to get back in touch. Oh, you're so gorgeous, Linda. Honestly, I feel so lucky that we connected. Thank you for this great conversation. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you for being in the world, doing all the wonderful things that you're doing. And, uh, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much, Jules. I am grateful to be able to be on your platform. So thank you to the one and only Jules Brooke of <laughs> She's the Boss. I am so grateful to you. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'stheboss.com.au.